Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us and a national hero, Greg Radabaugh. Greg, thank you for joining today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mark. So, Greg, you know, your experience um, being the owner of Gray Bar, uh, Gray Bear Consulting, um, obviously, you know, the extensive work that you did for the United States government, uh, uh, as a member of the Department of Defense, Senior Executive Services, and the Director, the Joint Information Operations Warfare Center, uh, you know, being the Chairman, uh, Joint the Chief of Staff. I mean, how does a guy that grew up in Northwest Ohio end up with these accolades? Well, uh, it started off back in the early 1970s uh, when my draft number was three. And I knew the draft was winding down and I was in uh, undergrad school and I didn't have money to go on to graduate school because my uh, goal at that time was to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And so I thought, well, okay, Uh, I love flying. Uh, I've been around the Air Force. My father was retired Air Force. So I thought I'll just join the Air Force, do my four years get out and let Uncle Sam pay for my master's and PhD. And I started in 1974, enlisted, and uh, the Air Force uh, sent me to Defense Language Institute to learn Mandarin Chinese. And so uh, after graduating from there and various uh, other technical schools, uh, I spent a couple of years flying uh, reconnaissance missions in uh, uh, Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And around about 1979, uh, I, you know, being the bright lad I am, I noticed that officers got paid more than uh, sergeants. So I applied to officer training school with the Air Force, and the fools took me. And uh, I, my intent still is, okay, I'll do this for a little while and get out and use my GI Bill. But the one promise I had made to myself was I'll quit doing this when it stops being fun. And it never stopped being fun. Uh, I was commissioned in the Air Force and spent time overseas and time in Washington, D.C., uh, worked uh, for various three-letter agencies. And uh, in 1989, uh, my personnel uh, center made me an offer I had to refuse. So I got off active duty and stayed in the reserves and retired from the Air Force uniform service in 2004 after 30 years. Uh, But from 1989 forward, I was a DOD civilian uh, working as a... uh, an analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and at times supporting uh, the on-site inspection agency, doing arms control inspections in uh, the Soviet Union and Russia. And then uh, 1996, 
Uh, I moved to San Antonio, Texas to uh, be a senior information operations planner uh, for the then Air Force ISR agency, which is Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. Uh, and that organization is now known as 16th Air Force. And uh, moved around a bit. I was the became the chief of intelligence for the Air Force Information Warfare Center and uh, became uh, the chief of uh, policy and uh, lessons learned for the Air Force ISR agency. And from there, they transferred me to be chief of cyber operations. And uh, at that point, I applied and was accepted to be the director of the Joint Information Operations Warfare Center, uh, which is uh, known as a Chairman's Controlled Activity, or a CCA. And there's only seven of those that work directly for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I was director of the JIAWIC from 2012 to 2018, when I finally retired from the Department of Defense after 44 years. And that just seemed long enough. And now I have my own consulting company, uh, Gray Bear Consulting. Uh, I know that sounds close to Gray Beard, but uh, since the, the bear is my spirit animal, I thought, and I'm old, I might as well uh, run, <laughs> run with it. You know? so, so Greg, if, if uh, the, the listeners and our clients want to be able to reach out to you, is it best way, uh, email, is it your LinkedIn? Uh, how, can, how can somebody reach out to you that's listening to the podcast? Oh, sure. I am, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website, graybearconsulting.com, all one word. Uh, my email address is greg at graybearconsulting.com. And my cell phone is 210-473-3248. But just a warning, I get so many spam calls and calls from strange places that if I don't know you and recognize you, I will let it go to voicemail. So if you need to get in touch with me, leave me a voicemail and I'll get back to you. Great. So, so let's jump right into it. So um, given all that's going on in, in uh, geopolitical events, you know, there really is no peacetime in uh, the information environment. Can you kind of talk about what's going on with respect to um, uh, Eastern Europe and perhaps the, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war? Um, and how cyber has really impacted perhaps some of the operations over there? Sure. Uh, we'll understand that uh, your comment about no peacetime in the information environment is absolutely true. And that's something that uh, we have uh, spent a lot of time educating senior leaders, both in Department of Defense, the rest of the government, and our allies. Uh, we are, in essence, in a steady state of warfare, just below armed conflict, and it's ongoing uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And from a military perspective, uh, what I would tell people is that, in essence, information rounds are being fired at us 24-7. One of the difficulties that uh, commanders run into is in assessing who's firing the rounds, uh, what impact do they have, do I need to respond to them, uh, do I even recognize that information rounds are being fired. Uh, so what our information technology that we have today uh, has done is it has enabled adversaries, potential adversaries, 
can have an effect far outside their physical boundaries. So from a Chinese perspective, uh, I would recommend to your uh, listeners uh, reading the book Unrestricted Warfare by Colonel Chao Liang and Wang Xiangsui, and in which they talk about China's outlook that uh, there is no difference between military and civilian targets. Everything's a target. And the Russians have a, uh, a doctrine of information confrontation. Uh, and it's kind of along the same lines of the state of permanent warfare. And it's kind of like total warfare, including the enemy's internal uh, aspects uh, it's asymmetrical because uh, it uh, also talks about political, economic, ecological information uh, campaigns. And uh, the Chinese formal uh, doctrine is called the Three Warfares, uh, Sanjong Zhanfa, which, uh, as an attorney, you'll be happy to know one of those aspects is legal warfare. Uh, Another aspect is public opinion or media warfare and psychological warfare. Uh, so those are what uh, potential adversaries have arrayed against us. And <clears throat> given the current conflict going on in between Ukraine and Russia, uh, people have been seeing a lot of what we refer to from a military perspective as operations in the information environment on both sides. And from a Russian perspective, uh, what they have been focusing on is their internal audience. Uh, a lot of it, especially in the beginning, was <clears throat> the justification for going into Ukraine, uh, convincing the population of they had to go into Ukraine because Ukraine posed an immediate danger. Uh, it was full of Nazis, and remember the great patriotic war, we've got to take out all the Nazis, and <clears throat> it's also oppressing Russian-speaking peoples and the Donbass and everywhere else. And one of the worrisome things that uh, President Putin had spoken of often in the past is that Russia will extend protection to Russian citizens wherever they are. And so that's why folks in the Baltics are rather nervous because there are large Russian-speaking populations in those countries. And so from a Russian perspective, they justify their actions uh, in the past, like going into Georgia, of uh, protecting uh, Russian-speaking people because they're being oppressed by these other countries. So uh, Ukraine, on the other hand, has focused its operations in the information environment on an external audience, primarily the West, uh, in gaining support from the US and NATO and the allies and providing uh, material support, financial support, and so on. And they have focused on uh, you know, our countries being invaded. We didn't do anything to ask for it. You know, we're fighting the good fight. Uh, you know, people are dying thanks to Russian uh, war crimes. And, uh, you know, both Russia and Ukraine have had some screw-ups uh, in, in both, on both sides, uh, 
where, as you know, the Russians said, you know, we're a mighty force and we're heading in, we're overwhelming uh, Ukrainian forces. And yet you can see news reports coming out of Ukraine of, no, Russians haven't advanced very far. And oh, by the way, here's video of, you know, Russian uh, equipment uh, stalled on the side of the road because the tires, which they purchased from China, uh, had crumbled and the equipment was no longer capable of running. Uh, to the Ukrainians, uh, you know, sending out falsehoods like uh, the incident on Snake Island where they said that the Ukrainians there said, screw you to the Russian Navy and they all died gloriously when in fact they were all just captured and they're still alive. Or another video incident where they were trying to establish Russian war crimes where you had a spokesman sitting in a gym with a bunch of covered bodies behind him. And unfortunately, one of the bodies picked that moment to start uh, coming to life and rearranging the, the blanket over them. So that kind of, you know, shot that in the, uh, the butt as far as believability. So the one interesting thing coming out of the Russian-Ukraine conflict is the number of outside analysts that have been looking at the data of both sides and using uh, commercially available data, such as commercially available overhead imagery from space and uh, people reporting on the ground, uh, to be able to track and say, well, this is where we actually see the Russian forces. It doesn't match you know, the Ukrainian or Russian uh, comments. Uh, we had one individual that uh, is purportedly uh, been able to get into the Russian-Ukrainian cell phone system and was able to track down all the cell phones with Russian-based phone numbers and arrayed them as red dots on a map and said, well, here's where all the Russian forces are because, you know, the poor snuffies in the field aren't turning their cell phones off. So they're able to geolocate them and show them actual positions of where the Russian forces are, which you would think the Russians would have learned because they did the same thing to the Ukrainians early in the war, where uh, the Ukrainians responding to the initial attack uh, didn't turn their cell phones off and the Russians geolocated them and killed them in artillery barrages. So it's been a very interesting uh, observation of what's happening from an information perspective. And I suspect after the war finally concludes, uh, there will be many lessons acquired uh, from the conflict for operations in the information environment. And I say lessons acquired because one of the most difficult things in the military, uh, as far as I've seen, is actually doing lessons learned. We usually don't learn from our lessons. We just acquire them and then file them away for later. We, yeah, you're making me laugh because uh, uh, have, I, I have a mentor here who always says we need to debrief on lessons learned because a near miss is just as valuable as an actual loss. Uh, or sometimes more valuable oh, yeah. because there's a lot more to learn. So I very much agree with those points. I guess my question to you, Greg, is should the civilian sector prepare for a conflict at this point? Oh, absolutely. Uh, what we have seen is the, uh, well, the nature of warfare hasn't changed, which is you're applying force to make an adversary do or not do something. Uh, in essence, the geometry of warfare has changed. Uh, the Western concepts of the law of armed conflict relying on Westphalian concepts of chivalry, 
territorial integrity and what constitutes an armed attack don't apply to our adversaries and potential adversaries in the information environment. Uh, tra the traditional civilian private sector areas, uh, as I alluded to earlier, by at least the Russians and the Chinese are now considered valid, valid military targets. Sure. And so these targets will be used to affect U.S. allied military responses to any conflict. Uh, so, and they will happen in ways that people won't normally expect. Uh, you know, everybody can you know, consider that, yes, you know, the Russians and the Chinese, if we would get into a physical conflict with them or you know, any other nation state uh, or non-nation state pilot extremist organization, uh, we think of, yes, they'll do denial of service attacks and, uh, you know, they will, you know, put out propaganda and uh, conduct uh, deception operations and so on. But what people fail to understand is that there are other targets that have a direct effect on military operations. So as an example, if you're a commander preparing to go into the field, uh, to respond to a physical conflict, you're not going to get your troops to uh, assemble and move quickly if suddenly many of your troops are calling in and saying, I can't go, my family doesn't have any money, our bank account disappeared, sure. and our power was cut off. And uh, so you're trying to deal with that. And then as you're trying to move materials to a, say, for example, a port, uh, you find out the port is under attack. Uh, you know, the industrial control systems that enable uh, power and fuel to get to the port are no longer working, or uh, they've shut down uh, access to the port, uh, or uh, another capability which people in the U.S. don't consider because like, we wouldn't do that, so they think, of what happens when you're the mayor of the Port of Houston uh, trying to support the port operations because the uh, infantry division at Fort Hood is trying to get to the port to load up all its equipment and supplies and people and move to either Europe or the Pacific. And the person responsible for all of your security and cybersecurity for Houston, uh, suddenly the press and the mayor's office and all these uh, other big hitters in Houston start getting emails and Instagram hits and uh, texts that this person in charge security is actually a pedophile. What are you doing with him in? you know, a position of authority, and it's all bogus, but as the mayor, would you then go, okay, I've got to remove him and conduct an investigation, and that directly impacts your security ability to respond to what's going on in the port. These are the kinds of things that civilian sectors traditionally don't think about because they go, well, I'm not a target. Well, if you're able to transship military capabilities to an area of responsibility, yes, you're a target. Uh, if you're providing gasoline to troops to get to base, you're a target. If you're providing financial 
support to troops, you're a target. And uh, that's one thing that our civilian sector and private sector aren't thinking about or prepared for. And that's one of the reasons I try to do educational aspects such as this to help people get in the mindset of any future conflict and even today, because much of what we see going on with things like ransomware is in essence, our adversaries conducting intelligence surveillance reconnaissance of our private sector networks and getting paid for it. So we are in essence actually paying our adversaries to conduct espionage. And uh, that's a big effect. So, so Greg, um, whether it's from a, a, a private sector or a governmental sector, what can we do to help protect ourselves and mitigate these, these threats of things like ransomware and DDoS attacks and things like that? Well, it requires the civilian private sector to start thinking about security the same way we do in the military. And that is kind of an overall term of operational security. And so, as we found in the military, you can't protect everything. Uh, so, say, for example, uh, cyber networks on an Air Force base. Uh, do I really care if the base library gets attacked? Uh, what I care about is if an attacker can get into the base library and then go from there into more secure systems. So private sector companies and trade organizations and whatnot need to sit down and think about what are the real crown jewels that I need to protect? Is it my uh, intellectual property? Is it my ability to operate, for example, an airline reservation system uh, that if that goes down, my business shuts down? Is it an industrial control system that uh, enables me to operate uh, oil and gas pipelines, as we found out last year with the Colonial Pipeline incident. Uh, understand that you need to be thinking about what's important to me, what do I need to protect that will keep me operating despite attacks. And that even goes down to things like your reliance on, uh, uh, you know, communications technology. How often have people gone into sensitive meetings with their cell phones or their laptops? And we know very well adversaries can turn on the microphone and camera of those cell phones and laptops and listen and record and even see what is being discussed in sensitive meetings where you're talking about intellectual property, where you're talking about how to mitigate attacks on your operating systems and so on. Uh, I know some firms have now uh, started doing things like putting cell phone jammers and Wi-Fi jammers uh, in their conference rooms. So it doesn't matter if you bring your cell phone in, it's not communicating to anybody. And those are these kind of secondary and tertiary uh, access points that people don't think about, especially in the private sector. Uh, so think about how do you uh, provide operational security to your business? Uh, and then think about how do you shut down those second and tertiary information leakages? 
and then decide how do I mitigate this threat by doing things, for example, like having an offline backup of my network or having a secondary network that's offline that can go online immediately if your primary one goes down. And I know those from a cyber perspective are very expensive mitigations, but uh, I would say you're either gonna pay a little bit now for that or pay a lot later. Sure, sure. <clears throat> So Greg, and the other thing I would other thing I would mention is when you're thinking about your operational security, do due diligence on any other firm or entity or trade organization that you're doing business with, because our adversaries love to use front companies that uh, are based in the West or in the United States. Uh, so that if you're dealing with a company and you're going, oh, great, they're based out of uh, San Francisco. I don't have to worry about it. it's a U.S. company when it's actually a Chinese company. Sure. Uh, just as, you know, a minor aside, uh, we've seen that happen uh, from a uh, merchandise standpoint where you go online, uh, whether it's through Amazon or on a website, and it says U.S. company, you know, made in the United States. And you place an order and your order arrives through international mail from Shanghai or Qingdao or somewhere else. And if you want to complain about it, uh, you know, the responsible party is a Chinese entity located somewhere in China. So <clears throat> we're seeing a lot of scams uh, happening that way where uh, a U.S. company purportedly advertises, uh, for example, at Christmas time, you want to buy a large nativity set for your front yard and it's five foot tall. And what you actually get in the mail is this one foot cardboard cutout that you paid a ton of money for. And uh, at that point, the best you can do is go back to your credit card provider or PayPal and dispute it. And sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. So from a business perspective, uh, if you're thinking about, you know, partnering with someone and, uh, you know, due to contract requirements, uh, you know, from DOD or from the government, it says, you know, you only work with U.S. or allied interests like a company from the U.K. or Australia or someplace. Uh, you really have to do your due diligence and follow the trail back of who really owns the company, where are they located, where's the funding coming from, and also understand, especially if it's a Chinese entity, that China passed a law a couple of years ago that said <clears throat> any company operating in China, whether it's Chinese or otherwise, must provide information back to uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, as a national security requirement. So if you think you're protecting your intellectual property and you're dealing with a uh, purported U.S. company that's actually a Chinese front company, that intellectual property is going back to China because Chinese citizens are required by law to do that. And if they don't, they would be heavily sanctioned. So they really don't have a choice. So Greg, I mean, we've spoken about a host of uh, uh, topics um, um, sensitive and non-sensitive, governmental and private. 
Is there any uh, closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before before we jump? Uh, yeah, I would say that a greater awareness of these operations in the information environment is crucial to private sector success. Uh, industrial control systems, security is gonna be you know, absolutely critical to maintaining our first world environment that we live and enjoy today. Uh, <clears throat> we are seeing a rise of companies providing characterizations of this information environment. So you as a public entity would uh, probably like to know if somebody is shooting information rounds at you to take down your company's reputation or, or damage your ability to interact with other companies or the government, uh, you know, how do you respond? Uh, <clears throat> and I know you've seen, you know, ads on television, whatnot of, hey, you've gotten bad Yelp reviews, we can help with that. Uh, it's going to go farther than that. And then uh, as a future concern, I would say uh, the advances we're seeing in artificial intelligence uh, are doing amazing things with imagery. And so when you're dealing with a entity online or even in a Zoom call, it's getting increasingly difficult to delineate uh, an AI sure. uh, personality from a real live personality. And so you have to ask, are you really dealing with your client or somebody mimicking your client? So in the maybe not so distant future, I could see a requirement for, I need to meet you face to face and I need to provide a DNA sample to prove, yes, I am who I really am. Uh, just because the technology is getting so good at mimicking real life people. You certainly gave us a lot today, Jeff. Uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts. And of course, thank you for your service to our country and coming on the show and chatting side with us. Thank you very much for having me.